Hi everybody, uh, Duncan Green here with the uh, latest roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. I'm exhausted from social interaction. I've been up to Oxford for a couple of times for the first time since the pandemic started and met, and met up with old friends and new and just had a fantastic time talking to Oxfam colleagues and then a bunch of things online with the Gelly participants, all of them just absolutely brilliant and they will doubtless be blogs, but they have, I haven't had a chance to write them yet. So I will talk you through the posts that I've done so far. So first up was um, the usual links I liked. Uh, Hilary Mantle died, uh, author of Wolf Hall and many other great novels. And uh, there was just a really nice quote from her about the nature of history and evidence uh, circulating on uh, Twitter. So I'll just read you that. Evidence is always partial. Facts are not truth, though they are part of it. Information is not knowledge, and history is not the past. It is the method we have evolved of organising our ignorance of the past. It's the record of what's left on the record. It's the plan of the positions taken when we to stop the dance, when we stop the dance to note them down. It's what's left in the sieve when the centuries have run through it, a few stones, scraps of writing, scraps of cloth. It is no more the past than a birth certificate is a birth, or a script is a performance, or a map is a journey. It is the multiplication of the evidence of fallible and biased witnesses, combined with incomplete accounts of actions not fully understood by the people who perform them. It's no more than the best we can do, and often it falls short of that. Isn't that astonishingly good? Oh, Sometimes you just have to throw up your hands and say, thank you. Anyway, thank you, Hilary Mantle. Um, and then a more, on a more prosaic note, but still fascinating, Jess Crombie, who's on, who teaches with me on the Gelly course, sent me a link to a paper which showed that female hurricanes are deadlier than male hurricanes. You know this practice of giving hurricanes names, right? The ones with female names are deadlier than male ones. Can you work out why? Well, it's because they lead to lower perceived risk. Girly hurricanes are less dangerous than big macho male hurricanes. Wrong. So this is a really interesting example where gender, gender stereotypes actually kill. However, there was some debate on the comment, in the comments, of course, on the methodology and blah, 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 but still really interesting headline finding. The next couple of posts, um, we've come to the end of this kind of intense period. Well, first we designed the uh, the um, Leadership for Influencing course, uh, known as GELI, Global Executive Leadership Initiative. Um, and then we delivered it in six places very rapidly from uh, April through to uh, last month. And so just a couple of reflection pieces, one from me. What did we learn from six months of training senior aid people in influencing? Why, a uh, bit of background before I get onto what we learned. Why influencing? Because in the words of one person we interviewed, in the humanitarian system, you get promoted because you're good at tents and blankets, and then you have to try and stop the Saudis stop, uh, from bombing Yemen. The Global Executive Leadership Initiative, GELI, uh, its influencing program is part of a broader set of leadership training funded by USAID and the EU. LSE won the bid for the influencing bit, despite me being the director. Harvard is delivering most of the rest. The methodology is big on participation. We have a 2080 rule. Only 20% of the content should be traditional teaching. The rest has to be participant led. 
and adapted to the realities of being a senior aid person, brackets, insane inboxes and time pressures. Each cohort kicks off with a four-day face-to-face program, followed by four weeks of online learning combining online modules with personal coaching sessions. The funding has now run out, but we think we now have a great course and we'll be casting around for new funders. If you are such a person, please get in touch. Here's a few headlines from what we've learned. While the core flow of argument remains, you do your analysis, you move to strategy, and then you go through to private and public influencing, there's been a lot of evolution as we tweak each course in succession. We found better ways for participants to lead the discussion, such as a participant panel, much better than external speakers, in my opinion, and dilemmas labs of five or so people who take it in turns to present a work challenge and get feedback from their peers. In a similar vein, we abandoned pre-cooked case studies on Ebola and Sri Lanka and the Tamils, uh, Tamil conflict, which was painful because they were a lot of work, and in favour of improv. You listen very closely to people's introductions on the first day, you find a theme that everyone can get their teeth into, and you work through the influencing cycle uh, that I just described on that theme. This gave us themes such as migration in Panama, disability in Bangkok, and hunger in Nairobi. It's a bit scary because you can't prepare everything beforehand, but it's much more immediate and I think it worked better. Next learning point, simplify, simplify, simplify. We reduce the number of online modules. We cut the number of tools we were throwing at them. The most useful in the analysis part, which I ran, turned out to be the fishbone diagram for unpacking problems and the five whys where you just ask why, 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 and drill down into a problem. And the stakeholder map based on choosing a particular point of entry from the fishbone and digging into the players. We've got some really nice diagrams, which Ashley Sally Hoglu from the Gully team has, has done up all nicely uh, of what the participants came up with in Nairobi on the whole issue of hunger and the role of women. Next learning point, have fun. We introduced a social evening halfway through and devoted the last day to a massive simulation of a crisis in the imaginary country of Gelia. And these were big hits, they bond the, the group together. We also defended the breaks, two half hour coffee breaks and at least an hour for lunch, rather than let them be eroded by session overruns, which is usually a really annoying thing that happens at conferences. And I'm afraid there is no substitute for face-to-face. Yes, it's expensive, hard to organize, terrible for the climate, but people arrive just delighted to be away from their office, even if they had to take numerous calls and meet new faces post COVID. The challenge has been to take that buzz into the online sessions when people once again go back home and are swamped by work demands. And so we've only been partially successful there. Final learning point, WhatsApp beats emails every time. And feedback from participants, we haven't got the full mail yet, but a couple of things. People really valued the peer-to-peer interaction with a range of others, you know, UN talking to international NGO, who are normally either across the table or even, you know, lobby targets. But people also value hearing from the experts. I'm not particularly comfortable with being described as an expert, because I don't think I really am. But some of my fellow trainers, Hugo Slim, Anna McDonald, Jess Crombie and Maruk Hassan, really are experts in their field. And people want to hear from them. But it's also weird how people revert. So, you know, they revert to being a student in this environment. I had senior, senior aid people 
asking for permission to go to the bathroom. What is that about? Learning materials people aren't going to read, right? So podcasts are good, videos, one-pagers, and probably not even those. So you've just got to expect that people arrive with a very light bit of prep. You can't send them academic papers and say, read these like you can with students. You probably don't read them either, to be honest. <clears throat> a few simple tools that help them systematize what most of them already know. And most importantly, explain it to their teams. Remember, these are the things that came back from the participants. They really like, you know, they learn things over 20 years in post. But if they can shortcut that and, and have a tool which explains what they the understanding they've come to and give that to their teams, that just makes everything much quicker and more efficient. And that's one of the things they picked out that's really useful about the course. And stories, lots of stories. They love the stories from the trainers, from the participants, and that's often what sticks in people's heads. And they agreed, fun, the simulation's always a big hit. So what happens next? Well, we're still processing what's been an intense year, but a few initial thoughts. We've got to find some money or nothing else happens. I think we need to find an institutional partner or partners in the global south, maybe one in each region. We tried to, you know, we were very acutely aware that we were an all white team. We tried uh, at the beginning, we tried to decolonize kind of one trainer at a time. But actually, I think we need to go much further and just bring in institutions with different institutional viewpoints. Um, might be interesting to try and build, do a sort of training the trainers, and build a cohort of trainers. Now we think we've got a methodology that works. But I'd be very interested in anything else. And if you want to see more about this, there's a video of me discussing the program with uh, Alina Rocha-Menakal, who's the uh, coordinator of the Thinking and Working Politically Network. The next post was by two of the participants. Uh, they got in touch and said they wanted to write something, which is great. Uh, this is from our, our session in Panama. Thomas Damor Rodriguez, who's a National Influencing Advisor at Oxfam, and Alice Shackelford, who's a UN Resident Coordinator in Honduras. They're the biggest of big cheeses in the UN. They have to try and coordinate all the different UN bodies in a, in a given country. And they wanted to discuss what they learned and the implications. I'll just read it out. A couple of weeks ago, the Gelly course on influencing for senior leaders brought representatives from the UN and several national and international NGOs across Latin America together in Panama City. We were expertly led through four days of getting to grips with different tools for influencing, hearing powerful experiences of advocacy and campaigns in national and multilateral contexts, and being thrown into practical exercises to test our skills, including a full day simulation of multiple crises hitting the country of Gelia. It was precisely during this exercise that one key lesson emerged. We were split into groups trying to make sense of how to respond to forest fires, displacement, social unrest and international pressures. Whether we had been assigned to play the role of national government, neighbouring government, local social movements, NGOs or UN agencies in the humanitarian country team, our aim was the same, to try and reach agreement around a joint communique to secure emergency funding to save lives and rebuild the country. Easy, right? Beyond the curveballs that the facilitation team threw in throughout the day, including your very own Duncan Green, playing the role of the holiday, holidaying ambassador being called back to chair the communique meeting. There's an excruciating photo of me, by the way, if you want to see that, pretending to be a on-holiday ambassador. Fairly convincing, I think. One fundamental challenge quickly emerged how to coordinate across multiple stakeholders with varying political interests and often very specific agendas of their own, 
particularly given the government wasn't stepping into that coordination role. We've been introduced by Gelly's Hugo Slim and Anna McDonald to a framework for thinking about the impact of our influencing work. What was interesting was how quickly each of our groups immediately set about trying to influence on the upper two levels, connective and ambient. So this is a two by two. Top right is ambient, influencing terms of debate, including our own. Top left is connecting, connective, meeting the right people. Bottom level is operational, changing people's lives, normative, changing laws, policy and budgets. And what they're saying is that they stayed at the top bit, connective and ambient. So we were tweeting our own positions and messages furiously and rushing around trying to meet the people who seemed to have power, almost always bilaterally. At one point, the humanitarian country team announced how they had assigned the internal relief fund allocations from HQ and that they had a proposal for the flash appeal to be launched with the government. Although some consultations did take place, Gellian civil society organisations mobilised to make their voice heard and meanwhile the government criticised the HCT for not having consulted them. Few people seem to be standing back looking at the wider picture and assessing who actually needed to be involved. It was a high pressure, fun, but high pressure simulation, but parallels with real humanitarian contexts and coordination challenges could easily be drawn. In the face of multiple crises, the exercise emphasised the need to find ways to jointly strategize, particularly between national civil society, international NGOs and UN agencies. Our analyses of the context of the key emerging trends and threats to human rights and social justice are often very similar and our actions potentially highly connected. Yet when it comes to the specifics of our influencing strategies, we tend to hunker down in our own corners, focusing on the tactics and channels we are more comfortable with. And of course that limits the impact we achieve, particularly in the quadrants of normative or operational change. We tend to look at the context from our own perspective without necessarily understanding the positions and proposed actions of others. Each of our organisations has voice our organizations has voice and legitimacy in very different spaces. Perceptions of our organizations vary hugely depending on who we should be speaking with, even though we may have common goals. This means that on those common goals, joint strategies could mean certain actors speaking up in certain spaces and moments and others staying silent. On more than one occasion, we heard UN staff members allude to the fact that NGOs tend to be quick to speak out, not always achieving the intended aim. And we also heard the frustration from NGO reps when the UN seems to fail to speak out in times of crisis. The setup of a humanitarian country team at a national level allows for joint analysis and advocacy. It is intended to enable humanitarian actors to produce change in government approaches or secure international assistance, among other aspects. But it doesn't always work that way. The available points of entry for our influencing also vary hugely and all can be important. When one of the UN resident coordinators in the workshop took a call from a foreign minister, many of us from the NGOs thought it was just part of the simulation, but it wasn't. It was real life. It really was a foreign minister calling. Thinking through which stakeholders are important to engage is important in any strategy, but also being realistic about who each of our organisations can connect with, who is better placed to do that, and the importance of how each of these roles connects and builds on each other it's also vital. Finally, 
Effective influencing relies on excellent political analysis, and yet each of our organisations inevitably has glaring blind spots. The possibility of strategising together can help us identify these more clearly, and so test the assumptions we make about how change will occur. Establishing regular meetings between UN heads at a country level and the international and, in and national NGOs has been shown to be effective in developing complementary approaches and enabling strategies that build on each other's strengths. The multiple dimensions of any crisis we face require multi-dimensional partnerships and strategies for influencing and achieving change in people's lives. Beyond the specific phase of an emergency, humanitarian actors need to engage with each other on a regular basis, nurturing collaboration and partnership, and focusing not only on implementation, but also on influencing the critical actors in the field. We would all like to see attention placed on the issues that we prioritise, but perhaps a key benefit of joint strategizing across UN agencies and NGOs is that we could have more accurate analysis of where there is a real opportunity for change, encouraging us to focus collectively. So that's quite deep, I think, that, that piece. Very good, so thank you, Thomas and Alice, for that. And then final one is a puff, a straightforward puff. One of my jobs at the LSE is to organize a set of lectures which we rather um, uh, self-congratulatorily call cutting edge issues in development thinking and practice and um, it's one of the fun bits and um, we try and basically bring in lots of big names and we're starting off in on the 14th of october they happen on fridays uh, late in the afternoon so we reckon people can knock off work if they're in the european time zone and come and see it uh, and, and, and come online and listen uh, and if they're in other time zones it's on youtube it all goes on podcasts there's no escape right so we're starting with Harjun Chang, a great friend of mine, an economist who's, got, who's like super well-known. And he's, he's talking about economics versus science fiction. So let me just uh, talk to you about that. He's recently moved from Cambridge to SOAS, by the way. So he's going to be in London more, which is really nice for me. Economics and science fiction share many interrelations that are rarely recognised. Firstly, a lot of economics is science fiction. Many economists believe in the fiction that they are practicing science. Love it. While many also believe in the fiction that progress in science and thus technology is the solution to virtually all economic problems. Put that on a piece of paper, stick it by your computer. Saying that much of, saying that much of economics is science fiction doesn't mean that science fiction itself is not useful for economics. It has been a powerful way to imagine alternative realities in which very different technologies have changed our institutions and even individuals, making us rethink our assumptions about economy and society. Extending this logic, we can say history is a dystopian science fiction, even without memories of advanced technologies. Moreover, if studying history helps us to imagine other realities, so do comparative studies. In trying to understand the world, we can be immensely helped by science fiction, history and comparative studies because they allow us to see that the existing economic and social order is not a natural one, that it can be changed. And most importantly, that it has been brought about only because some people dared to imagine a different world and fought for it. Pretty good, eh? So Sinead Murphy is the discussant and I will be chairing. Uh, the only thing I'm a bit worried about is choosing the restaurant for the post-lecture dinner because Harjun is a major foodie uh, and he's, we are weeks away from the publication of his next bestseller, Edible Economics. 
get it bookmarked find it uh, it's going to be on a lot of christmas lists uh, he's got each chapter starts with a story of food and then he goes on to make some uh, you know telling points on various economic debates so that's hard june on the 14th of october 4 till 5 30 don't miss it but just a taste of who else is coming rafi Sliada will be talking about palestine branko milanovic will be talking about global income distribution naomi hussein will be talking about food and fuel riots jayati gosh We'll be talking about inequality and the climate crisis. Mushtaq Khan will be talking about anti-corruption. And Nanjala Nyabola, Idris Ahmad, and Amil Khan and Kecheng Fang will be talking about social media and disinformation. What a lineup. Very proud of, of, the, of putting that together. Do find them. Uh, come along. Put them in your diaries. It'll be great to see you. Have a lovely weekend. I'll be back next week. Bye.